Hi, Eric Goldwine here from LTCCC's Nursing Home 411 podcast. When families and friends of nursing home residents join together, they can be a powerful force for improving care and ensuring dignity of residents. That's why we at LTCCC have launched a program dedicated to empowering families and building family councils. For the past few months, we've been hosting a Family Empower half hour covering essential topics to help family members better advocate for their loved ones. Up next, you'll hear our March program where our Family Empowerment team, Janine Ferrari and Gloria Murray, are joined by New York State Ombudsman Claudette Royal, and they answer questions from residents and advocates about how to best work with the Ombudsman program to get results for our residents. For more programs like this, head to nursinghome411.org families. And you can get in touch with our Family Empowerment team directly at families at ltccc.org. Again, that's families at ltccc, that's three C's, dot org. Here's our music by Silverman Sound Studios. My name is Janine Ferrari. I am joined by my esteemed and fabulous colleague, Gloria Murray, and we have the distinct pleasure of um, being joined by Claudette Royal, who is the head of the New York State Ombudsman Program. And she is a lady full of answers. So the questions that you were smart enough to email to us beforehand and the ones that you will uh, ask today, we'll try to get to all of them, of course, but we've got a lot of questions for Claudette. So welcome and thank you for your time. Thank you for joining us on this glorious spring day. Thank you, Janine, and thanks, Gloria, for having me on this call. Um, I wanted to give a quick overview because I only we only have a half an hour of the program. Um, we are a federally mandated program through the Older Americans Act. There's a state ombudsman program in every state. Um, in New York, we are administratively housed in New York State Office for the Aging, and we have 15 regional programs across the state where we have um, paid ombudsman staff, and we also have volunteers throughout the state. The focus of our program is to work specifically with residents and keep resident-centered advocacy as the key point to everything that we do throughout our work. So when we're working with residents, we're focusing on what their needs and wants are, and we're working towards their goals for resolution. Um, we do work with families as well, for, especially for those residents that may not be able to speak for themselves, but ultimately we do try to make that contact with a resident initially to make sure that we should be working with that family member. And we do try to facilitate working with the facility with the resident for a resolution that both can be agreeable to. We're not Department of Health. We're not an enforcement agency. Um, in fact, we the goal of the program is to try to reduce complaints to Department of Health and to work with that facility to resolve issues right in that setting so that they can improve their overall quality of care. So in a nutshell, that's the that's our program. Um, I do know that you had received some questions prior to the this event, and I was gonna turn it over to you so you could ask some of those questions. Okay, we did receive a healthy amount of questions. Uh, and thanks to everyone for being on the uh, on the good foot, acting on the good foot and, and sending those questions in. Um, to start with, 
one of the questions I really, really like is how can we better advocate on behalf of our state ombudsman programs? We simply need more, many more. Right, that's from Liz Stern, and I agree with her 1000%. Thank you, Liz Stern, for that fabulous question. So we've actually um, had quite a few partners advocating for an increase for the ombudsman program and getting more ombudsmen across the state. We're actually running a marketing campaign right now for volunteer recruitment. We ran one last year as well um, to see if we can get more volunteers to join the program. Also, we've been advocating for an increase in funding to the program. So hopefully we will see some of that come to fruition you know, through this budget process to get more paid staff as well. Um, you can't really have one without the other. You need volunteers to make that you know, resident connection and be there on that regular basis and maybe be able to come back and work with the paid staff to resolve some of those bigger issues in the facility. But volunteers are very much needed in the program. Residents love seeing the volunteers, making those connections. Um, so we are in the process of recruiting for that and also hopefully increasing our paid staff as well. <laughs> Your mouth to God's ears. Thank you for that. Thank you. Claudette. One of the questions was, how does the LICTOF, the Long-Term Care Ombudsman Program, maintain its independence from influences from other parts of the state government? That's actually a really good question. While we are housed within New York State Office for the Aging and the way the, the government has set it up, the administration and community living, our funding from the federal government does go through NYSOFA, um, Office for the Aging, but our office is independent there. So whenever we're representing the program with other state agencies, we are representing the residents' interests. The goal of the program is to represent what the residents may need and what their wants are, and we're not, we're not influenced by what the other agencies may want. And sometimes those discussions can become you know, difficult because we have a different thought process we don't think of everything from just a regulatory standpoint. We also think of things more as a quality of life standpoint of issues and concerns. You know, we're just giving a, a really easy example. If somebody has concerns with, you know, they want apple juice or orange juice, that's their choice. It's not a regulatory issue um, on the face value, but that's the things that we can simply work with a facility to resolve. Um, when we're working with Department of Health and talking about concerns, some things are not always regulatory in nature, but we're looking at things from what a resident's perspective is in a facility and how can we improve that quality of care working within those regulations. So the ombudsman is a more resident-focused uh, advocate to get the resident's voice heard within the facility as to what their quality of life needs, correct? Absolutely, yes. Janine? Thank you for that. I love this question. This is from Joan, and Joan wants to know, what are the nursing homes doing to ensure residents and family members know about the ombudsman program? Uh, how can families and residents access this resource? Okay. They, um, some facilities work wonderfully with the program. Others you know, not, are not always as easy to work with. But by and large, facilities do want to use their ombudsman in, in the facility. They are required to have a poster in the facility to identify the program. Um, when we go in, we do provide information on the program. We provide brochures, maybe you know, other pamphlets, informational materials. But they are also, recently last year, there was new legislation passed 
that requires a facility to provide information on the ombudsman program on admission to the facility and as well as twice a year. So they are required to put out to families and residents that the ombudsman program is available and that there is this resource to them along with the posters. And many facilities do have multiple posters within, within the facility because there's different you know, floors, different areas. So most facilities are willing to let us put those posters in, up for more places, but they are required to put that out at least twice a year and on admission. So the facilities do make sure residents and families are aware. Great, thanks. So here's a really great question for you. Um, what do you do, Claudette? <laughs> I, oh, 30,000 view foot. I am, I oversee the entire program across the state. So I'm responsible for all of the regional programs and how they perform their activities throughout the state. We, in the state office, there's, there's five of us. So there's only five of us that really facilitate this program across the state. Um, we work on the policies and procedures. We work on disseminating those materials. We look at, we create all of the certification training materials also um, in line with what administration on community living requires for certification training. So some of the stuff that we put out um, is a direct um, reflection of what ACL's expectations are. So when ACL puts out something, we do have to make sure that the state is meeting those requirements. And that's what we do at the office to make sure we're um, meeting all of those expectations and the federal rules. We work with other state agencies, talking to the state agencies about residents' interests. I, I do meet with legislators as well as the regional programs do meet with legislators as well to talk about resident concerns. You know, we're responsible for kind of putting out all of that statewide data and no one loves data. I'm, I will be the first to say I don't love that we have to have all that information, but ultimately the only way to facilitate change is to have the data to support what you're trying to change. So we are responsible for making sure all of that data is compiled appropriately. I do have to do a report every year to administration on community living and what um, cases, complaints, visitation, what all the program activities um, throughout the year, as well as what systems advocacy things we may be working on. Um, so in a nutshell, that's sort of what I do. If you have more specific questions, I can certainly answer those too. Well, Thank I just want to throw one thing at you. <laughs> um, the program itself is, and maybe you can talk a little bit about this, is really based on confidentiality, which Absolutely. I think sometimes um, families, representatives don't, and sometimes, and residents too, all together, don't truly understand what that means. Can you just clarify what confidentiality of this program means for the residents um, at a nursing home or an assisted living facility when it relates to the ombudsman program and what, what we are able to do. Absolutely. Um, confidentiality is really the cornerstone of the program. When we speak with a resident, we can take no action. We can you know, make no attempts to work on that complaint without that resident's permission. So if they tell us something and we talk to them about how we could potentially resolve that concern, and it may require identifying them, we do have that conversation with them. And if they tell us that they don't want us to go and use their name for anything, we do not do that. We do not share their information with anyone. We don't go to a facility staff and talk to them. I knew that that was gonna happen. Um, 
we don't do any of that without their permission. Everything that we do is geared directly from the resident, including abuse situations. And I do want to bring that up because I know that that comes up a lot of a question of if you're seeing these things, why can't you report them? If a resident does not give us permission to report something that even if it's abuse related, we cannot do that because confidentiality is so important to the program and to the resident. And just as it is to us, what we share with other people is our choice. So we're never going to break that choice of a resident. Great, thank you. Denise? Thank you for that, yes. One of my favorite questions from Karen Klink. Why are the ombudsman's programs so different from state to state and program to program? While all the states are required to meet the federal regulations, each, so there's a kind of a basic tool, the federal regulations. Each state also has, you know, some of their own regulations. Also, other states may cover different levels of care. We don't all in every state cover the same levels of care. Some of the other states um, cover, you know, home care services and, you know, home, in home environments. New York does not do that. We are charged with covering nursing homes, adult care facilities, assisted living facilities, and also family type homes. But each state is sort of geared by their own rules and regulations based off of the federal regulations. So that's sort of the differences in the states. Um, they're also, some of them are run just out of the state office. Some are also similar to us where we're, we go out to regional programs, but all of the states are very different in how they facilitate the program. And sometimes there's extra requirements of capturing data in other states. We try to keep it to just what ACL requires because there's so much data already. You know, we we keep it to the to those basics. But there's there is variances across the state. But by and large, you know, the the main focus is the confidentiality, what the the role of an ombudsman is, all of those things are exactly the same. Um, region to region, we have some very small regions you know, that only have 16 facilities, but they're a pretty large geographic area. It could take two hours to get from one facility to another. Um, and then we have New York City, which has a ton of facilities and a very tiny little <laughs> area. Um, so our programs are, are different based on geographic makeup as well as the number of facilities that they have and the number of available ombudsmen. So some of the regions may have more volunteers than others across the state. So some of their ability to go into more facilities, it might be better in some of the smaller regions where they have a larger number of volunteers. You know, when I first came, we had a larger number of volunteers in our bigger regions, and now it's kind of flip-flopped. There's, you know, more volunteers in some of the smaller regions. So it does vary based on those things. So we did have a question from Jill Isaacs, and I'm not, I think Jill may be on. Um, if she would like to unmute herself and just kind of maybe give us a little bit more clarification. But her question was, what happened to communication with field ombudsman? So I don't know if Jill can um, unmute herself and just maybe have a, a, give us a little bit of insight as to what she was referring to, but that would be great if she could. Hello, um, I, I didn't hear the first part, but what my concern is, I was an ombudsman for 12, 13 years in Rockland County, and it's just fell apart. There's like nobody anymore. 
And I wondered what we're doing to revitalize it again, or it just, it's over. <laughs> no, absolutely. We are still trying to recruit volunteers in that area and across the state. And honestly, COVID decimated the program in the volunteer world um, a lot. We lost a lot of volunteers that were just not comfortable thinking about returning to facilities. Um, you know, many of their loved ones got ill. They had to take care of their own loved ones. And honestly, our population of volunteers tends to be older and sometimes they have their own health issues and that created a discomfort with returning. So we did lose a lot of volunteers. We are, you know, doing that marketing campaign, pushing to get more volunteers, trying to get that increase in funding. And I think I saw in the chat where, yes, in the, the proposed bills, the Senate proposed $2 million and the Assembly proposed $12.5 million. So, you know, I'm going to hope for the 12.5 <laughs> because it will be very, very, you know, strong to help the, the program. Um, but we did lose a lot of volunteers and we do still have some in that area, but the, but the number has definitely decreased. It has across the state and it's also decreased nationally. So it's not just a New York problem. It is a national problem with, with the volunteers not wanting to remain with the program. There's a, a big commitment involved in being a volunteer for the program. Um, and sometimes it's not always a feel good. You don't leave there with that feel good feeling. Sometimes you leave there thinking, I don't know what to do to, to make change. And, you know, it's not the same as, as delivering meals where you go, you do that and you're done for the day. It's, it's something that weighs on you when you leave. And most of our volunteers, because they are so compassionate and so dedicated, it weighs on them when they leave a facility. It's definitely a different, a different volunteering um, position than just Meals on Wheels or a committee. It's definitely a different. I remember you once said it was a professional volunteer mm -hmm. position, and there is a lot of responsibility and a lot of training and commitment from the from the person from the volunteer. It's a commitment that it's actually um, very similar to being like a volunteer firefighter. The requirements yes. that you have to meet yearly, you know, the standards that you have to be held to, the you know. The, the kind of fear involved in becoming a volunteer and going into facilities and not knowing what you're going into there. It's very similar to like a volunteer firefighter experience. And very similarly there, they struggle with getting people to volunteer because of the commitment involved. And you mentioned Gloria, the training, I mean, to become a certified volunteer or any ombudsman, there's a 36 hour, you know, certification training involved in it with a lot of material that people are expected to, to know and remember. Yes. Thank you. And it, although it is definitely theory, when you get out there, it, you kind of forget a little bit yes. and, and it's, you know, you're there doing practical now and, and yes, it can be scary. So volunteering is important and it is, we appreciate the volunteers immensely, but it is definitely um, a commitment for sure. Thanks for trying to build that up. Um, one question before we open it up, I think Janine, if it's okay to ask is, but yeah. A lot of, um, for our program, you know, and you had said that confidentiality is key. A lot of, a lot of the nursing home residents um, sometimes have a little bit of cognitive impairments. And uh, where do we stand on residents who have cognitive impairments and how to advocate for them? Because I, I do believe that, you know, the Ombudsman program was always a well-kept secret. However, I'm, I'm learning that sometimes it's a misunderstood 
program. You know, they they don't really understand what our role is when we're in that facility, especially when families want us to to do things, but we're resident centered. So on a cognitive um, disability or potentially, because we're not clinical, we can't judge things like that. How does the ombudsman um, how does the ombudsman handle that with families and and adv- advocating for that resident? So as we all know, there's there's different levels of cognitive impairments. And you know, while you might not be able to make all of your financial decisions because that takes a lot of you know executive thinking, you still at times can make those decisions of I want this meal or I would like to go to this activity. So there's there's different levels of that cognitive impairment. And we do try to work with the resident on those issues based on what their wishes are at that time. If we feel that they're not necessarily understanding what we're discussing with them, or they're they're not able to stay on that topic, we might, depending on the concern, we might work with the family member on that. But we always try to give the residents the benefit of the doubt first to talk with them about what their wishes are and see you know, where they stand on some of these things. Um, for a resident that truly is not able to communicate with you or express their wishes, we would work with the family member. And if that family didn't, if the resident did not have a family member and we were seeing concerns with that care, we can, you know, come back, they can talk to the state office because I can always override at some point if there's a serious concern with an individual that doesn't have a family, doesn't have a guardian, and doesn't have the ability to speak for themselves. We can still work on those cases individually. Great. Thank you. Janine, I'm going to turn it over to you. Thank you. We have a a question from one of our participants now. It's an anonymous participant, and they're asking, I am not in New York, and I am a family member. I have found our state ombudsman responsive, but found it difficult to work with a local ombudsman. How can a family member work better with ombudsman? I think there's challenges everywhere with working with people. And I think sometimes if you reach out to that state office, I know we've had situations where families have reached out to us. And and sometimes I think it's natural. People don't always click, right? Like you don't always get along with everyone. Um, So we try to to look at, is there another opportunity to maybe assign a different ombudsman or work with a different ombudsman? Or, you know, maybe the state ombudsman working with that local program on trying to help that family member resolve their issues together. So, I mean, there are opportunities for that and all the state offices are are able to take calls, but we do try to still work with that that local program to try to get that connection there because they are truly the boots on the ground. They are really the ones working with those facilities for the for the most part in most states. Thank you for that, Claudette. Um, we've got plenty of people on who would love to ask some questions. For those who wanting to ask questions, if you could use the raising the hand feature on, on Zoom, that would be most helpful to us so we know who to call on. Any live questions? I do see something in the comments about, I think that families often think a healthcare proxy or a POA gives them unlimited authority. And you're absolutely correct, Barbara, that does happen. And we do have to explain that to people that being a healthcare proxy or a power of attorney does not give you complete control over a person. People still have an independent mind and can think for themselves and we do need to work with them. Um, and I, I appreciate that you're you're correct. We need to clarify the residents' rights with families sometimes and facilities. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
Because actually, um, a healthcare proxy really doesn't come into play until a resident is deemed unable to make or lack capacity to make decisions, correct? But again, like you said before, it depends on what kind of decision, you know, um, if they don't like their food, that's not a decision that their healthcare proxy truly needs to advocate for. It's something that they could be talking to the ombudsman about as well. So yeah, definitely. Um, so uh, Janine, if I can take a minute, put it yeah. until we someone who raises their hand. Um, as you know, Janine and I are working on this family empowerment um, half hour, and we are working together to help families understand that strength, their strength in numbers when it comes to nursing homes. And we would like to assist families in developing a family council within their facility because strength is in numbers when you're advocating on a, a broader spectrum, not just on an individual one. And it, it was, you know, um, so can you just give a few um, pearls of wisdom about a family council and maybe how important it is or that we as a resource here for the ombudsman for families can assist them with doing that? Because I know the ombudsman work is very um, busy and challenging, but we wanna be here to um, help families know that's their strength in numbers. Absolutely. You know, we encourage facilities and families to have a family council. Um, as I mentioned though, with our capacity, we're not necessarily in all of the facilities. And we, you know, we, not, we may not be aware of a family member that might be interested in that. I mean, if a family might be that's interested in maybe starting a family council, they can reach out to us. They can also reach out to both of you who are working on facilitating that across, across the state. I think you're actually looking at doing kind of a national thing of helping families develop those um, family councils. But a family council can be very, very um, positive for a facility where you talk as a group. And from our program standpoint, when we work with a family council, we try to raise the issues that maybe are systemic Um things that all of the families seem to be identifying and not necessarily just specific residents. You know, we still would work with those family members on their specific resident issues, but sometimes, you know, there's bigger issues. Like you might hear from a family, there's just no activities for my, for my loved one here. And you look at the activities and there's really not many of them. And families might come up with some good suggestions of activities that might impact all of the residents. And that's the way a family can make change in a facility that's not necessarily regulatory, like we talked about, but could make a big impact on the resident's quality of life in the facility. So, and families do have ideas. And when they talk together, they say, oh, you know, that was happening on my wing or that was happening to my loved one, where the family council working together can empower themselves and all of the residents by moving those things forward. And, you know, using you guys as a resource to help, you know, kind of spark those family councils and get things started in a facility, I think is, is a really good resource. And our program can connect people to you as well, if that's something that they're interested in. Great. Thank you so Thank much. You. Thank, Thank you. you. I see Peter Yearwood has his hand up. Hello, Peter. Hi, how are you doing, Janine? Good. How are you, sir? Pretty good. Pretty good. Um, Claudia, this question is like twofold, right? First of all, um, Considering the shape that the ombudsman program is in right now, you know, with short staffing, not enough volunteers, what would you say would be the average response time to a patient with an issue? And the other part is like, what would you suggest they do if they cannot get a, a fast enough response from the ombudsman? 
So um, in our larger areas, New York's like for New York City, for example, they do try to respond to inquiries within two to three, three days. That's a goal. Um, that said, we don't have a, a ton of ombudsmen there. They are, I, I will give them a plug. They are doing a really good job of increasing their staffing there, increasing their coverage and getting more access out there. But, you know, everything takes time. And in some of the bigger regions, we can reach out by phone. We can use virtual communication. We can still work with residents, even if we can't get there to make sure that what residents are bringing to us is something that we can work on. And then potentially scheduling a visit to get to that facility to work with that resident. But they do try to respond to inquiries within you know, two to three days. And I would say that's a, across the state. You know, Some might be within a day. Um, I think most people try to, but are generally, I would say two to three days, you, you should hear something from the Amazon program on an issue that's been raised. Thank you for that, Claudette. I see Todd Metlovsky has his hand up as well. Hello, Todd. Hello, Janine. Nice to see you in person and also Gloria and Claudette. Thank you so much for doing this. I guess it's a question for all three of you. Uh, we have started uh, our family council. It's at the early stages. Janine, thank you for offering. We're going we're gonna to be seeing you on April 12th. Uh, but with that being said, it is likely that we're going to need some help across between what Janine and Gloria are working on and also Claudette with the ombudsman. So do you guys, will you guys like kind of coordinate together if there is going to be some uh, challenges where you could maybe to pull more resources at the help of family council? Janine? Tell me more, uh, Todd, for, forgive well, me because I, I know we had a, a really good conversation. Um, we did. We did, and I'm hoping it's going to be it's going to be great. Uh, my, the thought is is you're right now, as I can see, you're one human being, and we may need more help beyond just the ability of what Janine can do or Gloria. Just uh, I'm just kind of be forward thinking, so I just wanted to make sure uh, see if we can you know do you guys regularly work together with the ombudsman? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Okay. And we're going to help you work more regularly together with your ombudsman. Okay. That's right. my goal. Um, and frankly, Todd, the same thing that's happened in my own family council, the, the more, the better an advocate you become and your family council members become, the better you are a, um, a teammate with your ombuds person, because you're learning to advocate and put out the little fires yourselves. What people don't realize is the voices that they have are strong and together with family council members, they're even stronger. They are a quiet, elegant shout that administrators are very hard to ignore. So just keep on with your family council. We're going to help you uh, edify it and, and become better advocates. And of course, you're going to work with your ombuds person, of course. There's a really, um, Derek Eck, I know you have your, your hand up. Sorry, Claudia, did I just- No, no, you? you're fine, you're fine. I, I Janine, see um, ahead, this is Judy. I'm actually Todd. We have spoken, and I am your ombudsman. Oh, okay. Um, Thank you. For okay. our region, just, yes, we no, have I been in touch. Okay. Yes. And Todd, I'll, I'll say it again. I, Judy, I'm sure is sick of hearing it. Judy has changed our lives in our family council, and and the lives of many of the residents at my father's nursing home. She and her team are spectacular. Um, so you are in the best hands that I know of firsthand because she is the ombudsman for my father's nursing home. So kudos to you. 
Um, thank you for that, Judy. I see Derek. Derek had his hand up first, and then Franklin. I see you as well. I want to get to you as well. Derek, talk to us. Uh, hi. Um, I I saw that the Senate and the Assembly both included an increase in funding in their one house budgets. Um, and I just wondered if you had any in inside information or any updated information on, on whether more funding might be included in the final budget agreement with the governor. Thank you. I have no insight on what might happen in the budget. I literally was just meeting with a few of the legislators on Monday and I have, I know nothing. I, I don't really know how it's all gonna, gonna turn out. I wish that I did. I mean, I can, you know, we put our pitches out and we put things out and the regional programs are reaching out, but ultimately I, I have no idea where things are gonna land. Thank you. Uh, thank you for that. Franklin Diaz, you're up next. Okay. Um, and I don't know if this is an appropriate question for this meeting, but Claudette mentioned that oftentimes a facility may be in compliance with the regs, but they're not meeting quality patient care. If I don't know if I, I if I'm misquoting you. And my my question is the following. When the facility, I'll give you a specific example, and then maybe you can help me. Um, a facility, I'm told that the Department of Health allows medications to be administered one hour before or one hour after the prescribed time um, without receiving a deficiency. So if the prescription, if the medication is supposed to be administered at noon, it can be administered at 11 or can be administered at one. Mm -hmm. This does not work for residents who must take the medications on time. For example, a resident with Parkinson's disease. So what happens when no matter how much you speak to the administrators and you try to impress upon them the importance of giving the medication at the appropriate time interval so that the resident doesn't freeze up and causes other problems and all you get back is I'm in compliance with the regs, I'm in compliance with the regs, I'm in compliance with the regs. Um, and hopefully our family council, which is in the um, early stages of formation, will be able to address this because I do believe there's strength in numbers, but um, I'm concerned that the response that the facility will give will be the same. We're in compliance with the regs because all they're concerned about is not being issued a deficiency. Meanwhile, my relative is not getting her medications when she's supposed to be getting it. She's freezing up, she goes into an off episode, and then it takes hours and hours and hours to get her back to her normal self. So my question basically is, <laughs> how, what support can you provide a family council when the response from the administration is, we're in compliance with the regs, even though the resident is being harmed. So your specific situation is kind of resident specific. And that's something that you could reach out to your ombudsman about and talk with, and we can try to work with the facility to see if there's any change that can be made. The other thing with that is if you speak with your doctor, sometimes a doctor's order can make a difference on that. And 
that's probably the best place to start, but that's something the ombudsman program could work with you with to maybe facilitate having a meeting with the doctor and with the facility to discuss your specific concerns. When it comes to medication management as a whole, that's something you know from the family council and other residents are experiencing similar things. That's something also that the ombudsman could work on with the facility to see you know what type of staffing that they have. Is there a way to move staffing times around to, to help accommodate some of those medication concerns. So there's, I mean, there's different avenues, but just giving it to you in a nutshell, those are some of the suggestions I would have. No, no, thank you. And, and um, I did speak to the doctor and the doctor did write a letter, a very, very specific letter indicating when the meds should be given and what the consequences are of not giving the meds. Um, but the facility that my um, relative is a member of um, markets itself as um, an expert on Parkinson's care, which is not the case. So um, I'll, I'll review this at the family council meeting, but um, I'm not optimistic that, that the facility is going to um, change their internal protocols um, because all they are concerned about is compliance with the regulation, not necessarily what's in the best interest of the resident. But thank you. You're welcome. Uh, we have, uh, I see Gloria Boyd has her hand up. Gloria, if you wouldn't mind unmuting and, and uh, posing your question, please. Uh, I have a comment and a question. The comment is that, granted, uh, I've been an ombudsman for 10 years and there's 200 residents at my facility. Uh, a great many of them have degrees of dementia, some declining quicker than others. but. What I find would be helpful in any of our situations that I find when I get the report from the resident who gives me permission and then I speak with the director involved with the particular problem, I try to get a balance between what the facility is telling you and what the resident is telling you, understanding the fact of the dementia. But the other thing I would want to say is that I think we should have more training as to how we should journey with these individuals that are declining because I find trying to bring them to reality isn't the best way to handle it and I and I don't know the right way I want to be supportive of that resident but they're inaccurate by what they're saying as far as seeing things and all kinds of wild ideas how can we better journey with our residents we certainly and since you are an ombudsman, we certainly can look at getting some more um, training opportunities related to dementia residents and how to work with dementia residents. So we can try to um, find some of those trainings to, to share with you, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, there is a question in the Q&A from Mary Jaworski. She asks, can't you report abuse without resident permission if you yourself witness it? No, we cannot. We cannot. If a resident does not have a family member and there is no one to speak for that resident and that resident is not capable of it, it's a conversation, you know, with myself in discussion. But if a resident does not give the permission, we cannot report it. No, we may look at other ways to get to, you know, that situation like... Yeah. Is there other residents experiencing this, watching to see if it's happening other places to try to get that permission from someplace else? Um, but no, we cannot report it. And Claudette, just to follow up with that is because we are not mandated reporters. 
on the ombudsman program. And that is because of the confidentiality that the program um, sits on, correct? Correct. And that is a federal requirement that we cannot be uh, mandated reporters. That's in any state. Thank you for that. And I've got a, I have a question from Miko Cook. Miko is asking, is there a way that the ombudsman program can connect resident council presidents to each other? I've actually spoken to Miko. Hi, Miko. Um, uh, We're hoping that, you know, in the future with our capacity increases, let's think positive, we're going to get more ombudsmen, that that might be some things that we can work at, maybe connecting some of the resident councils to each other. Um, I know some other states do it, um, but they're, they're smaller states. So, you know, if we can start small once we have more more ombudsmen and more active resident councils, we're hoping to maybe be able to facilitate some of that um, at some point. Thank you for that. And uh, with that, that is basically our last question. We've gone over a half hour, which is wonderful. Thank you everyone for bringing your question and your, your curiosity and energy. I just want to remind you that the LTCCC's Family Empowerment Group, which is Gloria and I, um, you can reach us at families at ltccc.org. You can check out this wonderful website that we have that is chock full of resources and tidbits, things that you can actually print out and use when you are talking to the staff and administration at your long-term care facilities. And that URL is nursinghome411.org.org. There are, if you're from a different state other than New York State, please know that the long-term care Community Coalition is countrywide. So there's a section even on your state. Um, It's not just New York Central. um, And we will try to get to your questions. There's just so much for you to download and use for your resident and family councils. Um, It is an incredible, useful resource, at least for our family council at at my father's nursing home. We have become a a better and more um, positive and uh, and results-oriented family council as a result of what the LTCCC has to offer in terms of tools. Anything else you want to add, Gloria? Or Claudette, Just to while say you're thank it? you for everybody, and thank you, Claudette. Um, this has been great. Thanks so much, really. Thank you very thank much you for your time. Thank you. And we're always available as a resource for, for you as well. Thank, thank you. you. And Todd, Todd, you will be getting that video. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us on this beautiful spring uh, day.